Hi everyone, welcome back. I am Harrison Cayley. This is Spective. Joining me today are Corey Schenk. Hello everybody. And Adam Daniels. Howdy. Now, last week we discussed social contagions and we ended the show by talking about some of the potentially positive aspects of that phenomenon and what would need to happen, what we would need to have in our world in order for um, all of the so-called good or positive aspects of social contagion of a type to have effect. And essentially what that means is what would we replace what we currently have with, or what would we inject into the systems that we already have in place in order to get all of the things that are seemingly lacking in our world. And by lacking, I am referring to things like a universal set of meanings and behaviors and customs by which people live and to which they direct their ordinary actions in everyday life and their long-term decision-making you know, over longer stretches of time. And one of the reasons that we even need to think about this question is because there is... Um, to us at least, and to many other listeners and thinkers, I would think, a uh, there is a lot lacking in our general worldview. And some people like uh, Jordan Peterson, but also like Stephen Hicks and uh, the other guy, I can't remember, remember, remember his name, that wrote that other book on postmodernism. Do you remember? David Detmer? Yeah. And what was the title of that book? Challenging Postmodernism. Right. So those are just two or three examples, but um, of a, what is really a wide field of philosophy and critique of postmodern philosophy. Um, because if you look at these thinkers and if you look at postmodern philosophy, you see that there is nothing really there. It is very deconstructive. It takes apart what we consider like the basic... Uh, presuppositions or axioms of the way we think and which determine to a large degree the actions that we take and you know the world the worldview that we live by but when you actually look at the philosophy offered by postmodernism the worldview offered by postmodernism there's it isn't really satisfying the main reason it's unsatisfying is because on the most fundamentally the most fundamental level it is self-contradictory and it can't hold up to even the most like rudimentary scrutiny to the point where I think that even if proponents of postmodernism in this form if they believe in these things on some level like even if it's just uh, you know one tiny level below conscious thought and even at the level of conscious thought sometimes they know it doesn't work so if if they actually truly believe these things, then on a subconscious level, they, they have to be aware that it doesn't work because they operate every day as if their philosophy is wrong. Because as we've discussed on the show several times in postmodernism, some of the basic claims of postmodernism are that things like truth and values are relative and therefore like don't truly exist in the way that we think they exist. So in extreme forms, you can find um, the denial of reality itself, of things being essentially better or worse than others. Just everything is equally 
good, essentially. It just So if you have someone that believes something's good, then it is good no matter what, even if there are contradictory um, truth claims, essentially, about morals or values. And the same thing with truth itself. <clears throat> Excuse me, truth is relative, so if you have your truth and I have my truth, then both are true equally because, essentially, because nothing is true. Of course, it doesn't make sense because if nothing's true, then even the statement that nothing is true can't be true because it couldn't possibly be true because truth isn't even a category in which we th with which we can think. So the problem then becomes, what do we replace that with? Is it possible to replace it with anything? What, you know, are there any other options available to, um, to in in terms of which to think that solve those problems and that well and that don't run into the same problems and that offer that kind of potentially universal system of, uh, of of value and just a way of looking at the world that is true essentially and that can account for the existence of truth. So with that in mind, um, we have been reading a book recently by David Ray Griffin who is, as we, you know, we've mentioned him on the show before, he is commonly known for his political writings, especially on 9-11, but he, before that, he is and always has been a philosopher and a theologian, and he follows the, or he, he's based in the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, um, whom we've talked about um, as well on the show previously, um, and that branch of philosophy has come to be known as process philosophy. So we've been reading one of his books um, called, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, I don't have it in front of me, Whitehead's Radically Different Postmodern Philosophy. Yep. Did I get that right? All right. That's it. <laughs> uh, when was that one published? Do you, do you know? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. It was... Uh... It's either like 2006 or 2008 or 2010, <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, 2010, there. I think. Okay, so a pretty, a fairly recent book. Um, it's basically a collection of essays that have been kind of reworked and stitched together to kind of um, all, all analyze one aspect of, um, of Whitehead's philosophy, and, um, th well. I guess the first thing that we should talk about is the title, because we have been fairly harsh and critical of the term postmodernism and the philosophies characterized as postmodern, and yet here we are talking about this guy Whitehead who seemingly has another postmodern philosophy. So maybe we can get into that. Um, where do you guys want to start with that? Well, I think you could just start by saying that. Um you know, postmodern is kind of a, is a historical term. So, you know, you have modernism um, in the modern era and the Enlightenment, and then you have, a, uh, you know, the postmodern, you know, after that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reflects uh, like an intellectual development, um, you know, especially scientific and then also social, just in terms of the, the many problems that arise when you adopt a certain philosophical stance. Obviously, there are going to be questions that your philosophy can't, answer and that's going to beg for you know that's going to uh, bring up more questions that people have uh, but the postmodernism that we see today basically is like a uh, it's not a positive critique of modern thought it's a very negative critique in the sense like 
if you are just going to um you know just call it's just call somebody stupid you know you hate them you know just the kind of hysterical things that we see today without offering like a really rational constructive criticism of why it is that you feel that way or what's wrong with it or even stating um you know uh what's what the problem is and so as a, like a radically different postmodern philosophy whitehead does that he lays out exactly what was wrong with the the kinds of uh, rational thought that um, we saw with the Enlightenment, and you know just how kind of narrow narrow it was, so that they ruled out the idea that you could um, perceive anything outside of sensory perception. Um, you know the idea that uh, the everything was uh, split into two fundamental different substances: material substance and spiritual substance, and how that just gradually ate away at the idea that there was anything spiritual at all, um, that there was anything immaterial that had any sort of agency, like the mind or, or anything like that. And uh, he he presents a radically different way of of looking at reality philosophically using a, metaphy a metaphysical system that explains everything that a person can experience. So while it's extremely difficult <laughs> to read and to, and to get through, um, which is why he hasn't, you know, he's not extremely popular. Um, you know, he's more like the philosoph uh, philosopher's philosopher, <laughs> or however you, whatever. Philosopher's but philosopher. Philosopher's philosopher, yeah. Um, and so he, he he basically mends philosophy back to what it could have been before it was broken by all of these uh, anti-human uh, spirit kind of philosophies that have come out. That you know, where they basically say that any questions that have that are have meaningful significance for humans aren't worth answering philosophically. Uh, the only reason that philosoph or philosophy exists is to analyze, uh, you know, science. You know, like the analytic school or you know the continental continental school that was, you know, philosophy was all about um, just kind of this uh, retreat into, into, into the mind and, you know, the, the outside world couldn't really be proven to exist. So, you know, he, he takes all of those, uh, the, those as starting points and then he builds a system that is radically different. He understands its history, he understands its logic because he was a mathematician and a logic, um, you know, he was a mathematician before he was a philosopher. And he understands science, he was a philosopher of science. And, and then he goes from there and he builds a system that he thinks can account for everything that we have, that science ha uh, has provided us, all of that information. And yet it is still retains uh, human experience within that system. So in that sense, it's radically different because rather than just sweeping away all the con contradictions by saying science is oppressive and science is imperialistic and, and there is no such thing as reality because, you know, two people can have different opinions, he says, well, no, you can actually explain that philosophically and using truth statements with, this, with his system. Mm -hmm. Well, one other thing that I, one of the ways in which I was thinking about this in terms of the whole modernism versus postmodernism thing, is that as you said, it's kind of like a, just a historical um, term. You had the the modern period and then the postmodern period. But one of the things about postmodernism is that it didn't come out of nowhere, and really, it is the it is the kind of the logical implication of modernism. And this is one mm -hmm. of the points that Griffin makes: is that it's not like um, like the postmodernists just kind of came up with all these wacky ideas. Um, really, what happened was that 
they were actually quite um, quite adept at finding the the holes in modernism. But instead of finding the holes in modernism um, and rejecting the actual things that were wrong about modernism, they kind of accepted those holes and the implication that those holes had as true and created a philosophy based on that. Now that might sound kind of obtuse, so I'll give some examples. One of the things that modernism did was, um, it was, it, well, under analysis, it is kind of self-contradictory as well. And this is what I think a lot of um, proponents of the Enlightenment and of modernism don't realize even to this day, is that on the one hand, um, modernism was many things. Like a lot of modernists were religious, but if we even set aside the whole religious angle, what we have is a system that believes in truth. So it is founded on the idea that there is truth, that the universe can be known, that the order of the universe can be discerned and described and measured, and basically that there is a reality, and that there is order to that reality, and that we can come to know the order inherent in that reality using reason. And the problems come into play when you look at the some of the other axioms you know, underlying that mode of thinking. And that has come to be known, one of those has come to be known as materialism. And materialism has various kind of aspects to it. There's materialism, but there's also an inherent atheism, and there's an inherent view of epistemology, so the way in which we come to know things, that is based on the senses alone. Like sensationism is how Griffin terms it. And when you when you really get into the philosophy of materialism, and this is something that Griffin is great at, um, because he doesn't just kind of quote Whitehead verbatim, he does his own philosophy, and so he takes on some of the biggest names in philosophy that came after Whitehead. Because Whitehead, um, he was writing some of his books like the like Process and Reality in like the 20s. So 20s, 30s, and 40s, I think he wrote his major philosophical works. So there's been a whole lot of philosophy done after his time, but all of these philosophers who are in the kind of, um, they're in the postmodern period, but you could still call them modernists in a sense, because they don't, they don't, um, they aren't proponents of the postmodernism that we've come to know. Like they, they wouldn't agree with the, you know, kind of the, the French radical philosophers or any of those guys in that crowd. But even they would agree about certain things, and Griffin shows this, that in all of these works by these great philosophers, like the best of them come to the conclusion, for example, that, um, you know, in our current worldview, we can't account for the existence of truth. Uh, we can't account for the existence of consciousness, and we can't account for the reality of any kind of norms, any kind of like normative values. So we can't say that one thing is inherently and essentially better or worse than the uh, than another. So we can't even well, and so that's usually in the context of morals, but it extends past morals because there are. Um, there are norms about anything. Whenever you're comparing something, there is something normative involved. And one example of that is just truth in general. So according to, like, at the very basis of modern philosophy, there is nothing in there that explains why or accounts for why truth is better than lies. So, um, so there is no justification, no rational and reasonable justification for 
scientists to um, come up with and you know put their weight behind theories that they think are true because there's no basis for truth um, because when you because materialism doesn't doesn't offer any place for truth to exist according to materialism the only thing that exists is matter and a very specific and simplistic view of matter so that's just basically like this stuff that bounces and into and interacts with other stuff now if all you have is this stuff where is the where is the room for um, you know a mind for something that compares and contrasts for something that you know compares and contrasts with uh, an ideal as opposed to something that which is already physically existent like how can you account for abstractions these things really can't exist in materialism and the only way that they can be force-fit into existing in this system is to say that they exist but they don't really exist which doesn't make any sense so in modernism there are like a ton of problems with modernism and what postmodernism does it just takes those problems like the fact that we can't account for truth that we can't account for morals and and then it just it presents those as um, positive truth claims so it really gets behind the idea that there is no truth and that, that there is no universal um, like normativity in the universe there's nothing that's universally applicable and not only is that self-evidently wrong um, well it's wrong on pretty much every single level so what they've done is that they've taken the worst aspects of modernism and then held them up as um, as philosophical truth to be believed and to somehow be um, you know brought into the realm of personal behavior and action and it doesn't quite work as you can see with like uh, you know the cultural Marxists who are you know on on three and a half days of the week they are um, they don't believe in anything and then on the other in the on the other half in the other half of the week they believe in you know the the truthfulness of cultural Marxism for instance it's contradictory mm -hmm. but uh, but that's the only thing they can quite do because they while they may have you know really discerned and divined the problems with modernistic philosophy they haven't been able to give that alternative and to find something to replace it with that is actually constructive and that actually explains the world so like you were saying um, earlier that's what Whitehead actually managed to do and it you know not being a, a genius level philosopher myself you know I can't I can't offer like a, a sustained critique of Whitehead but it appears to me as if that's what he managed to do and um, I think that David Ray Griffin would agree and that's why he wrote this book yeah I think one of my favorite passages uh, reading from Whitehead uh, is where he discusses the uh, the the rise of science <clears throat> And he, he writes that it is a great mistake to conceive this historical revolt as an appeal to reason. On the contrary, it was through and through an anti-intellectualist movement. It was the return to the contemplation of brute fact. And it was based on a recoil from the inflexible rationality of medieval thought. And I think that if, from that standpoint, that's really what... Uh, what Whitehead is, what he set out to do, was to reconcile that by bringing back uh, a rash, the rationality of medieval thought, but 
not in, in as inflexible as it was, and returning, um, you know, and bringing our faces back from just that contemplation of brute fact, which we've discussed on previous shows. Um, there, you know, people want to make that the, the foundation of a moral system, um, but that won't work as a foundation for a moral system because. You know, moral theories, uh, as David Grave Riffin uh, writes, they have to provide at least two things in order to become credible. They have to defend moral objectivity and be able to affirm that our best moral beliefs constitute genuine knowledge, and they have to have motivation. You have to be motivated to adopt that moral way of life. And, you know, that's what, you know, this inflexible rationality of medieval thought, you know, that the, uh, you know, God is in heaven and, you know, the Trinity and, uh, and all, you know, that everything, um, uh, all of the motivation involved there in following that moral code, you know, that's, that is uh, stripped away from the brute fact. The brute fact is just what is. And I think even in and that of itself, I don't know if we want to get into that right now, but what maybe, uh, what is Whitehead's idea of a fact? I mean, if you were Whitehead, what would you say a fact was? Well, <laughs> it's funny because I've been reading um, a book called, uh, I think it's called A Key to Whitehead's Process and Reality. Kind of just reorganizes and and cut, cuts and pastes Whitehead's most difficult book into a, an easier to understand format. And so I was I kept that question in mind while reading it. Um, but unfortunately, I forget what my answer was. But, but I can, I can kind of, I can kind of guess. You know, I might not get it totally right, but it'll be right in some ways and probably wrong in others. Um, probably a fact to Whitehead would be. Well, I'm guessing maybe there would be two ways of putting it, um, and I think this is the way David Ray Griffin puts it, and the way he uses the, you know, the word fact. So you could say that a fact is something that has happened in the world. And maybe just to get into a, like just a very basic understanding of Whitehead and why his philosophy is called process philosophy, is that he would say everything is a process. So everything is a process of um, subjectivity, bringing value into the world to become objectivity. So a subject becoming an object. And that is a constant flux of the universe, is that... that um, that pulsation between subjectivity and objectivity. So in one instant, I am a, a subject who is kind of self-determining my own future, or like everything about my own being. I am essentially self-creating myself um, through the action of the past on the present, like determining the conditions in which I live, and the possible futures that confront me, and which one I choose to um, to manifest in the world, and that can be an automatic process, largely driven by the, you know, the just the momentum of the past and the physical world, or um, you know, with with extra thought and character and you know, moral development, that can be a quite profound thing, bringing something totally new um, into the world um, that kind of um, transcends the the biology, kind of pushing you forward. And then at that moment of, of self-creation, I become an object. And so everything is kind of simultaneously a subject and an object. It's a subject for itself, which self-creates um, what it will be and what it is. But it is also an object acting on other subjects. So, and, and that's just the way the physical world works. So that, that would be causation. So when, whenever we like bump, you know, whenever we touch something physical, you know, those are two objects 
um, bumping into each other and in our own subjectivity we have an experience of that and when we see two objects bumping into each other there is a subjective element in those objects to some degree in some way depending on what those objects are that is experiencing that that um, that objective collision causation one on the other and on on very on like the physical level those are very regular um, occurrences one thing um, you know we can measure them and they're repeatable and seemingly universal like the way in which protons electrons you know and neutrons interact with each other to form the basis of of atoms and and, uh, and chemistry so that so everything is that process something becoming it's you can never have um, reality you know you can never have a, an objective slice of reality where you just halt everything and look at it as some some dead lifeless um, like objective thing but there but what you can do is see it as the process of subjects becoming um, so they're always becoming something and so when something happens in the world when when one thing becomes something else and and experience or and exerts causation on other things that is a fact so we could um, we can describe facts in words and and then at that point they become propositions so that is a, a statement of fact about something which um, which by itself is just a possibility because you can have any number of propositions so you have your subject which is the you know the the subject involved and then the predicate which is the the true or false thing about that subject and those can be true or false so if we have a statement about the world that is true um, then we have a fact and the actual fact itself is that thing which happens to be true mm -hmm. and but there are also I would argue um, kind of like moral facts and this is kind of one of the problems that the the, the Peterson Harris debates have had is that they never really got into a as far as I know just listening to the first two and then like the first half of the third debate they never really got into what each of them thinks is a fact you know like the, mm -hmm. the, the precise nature of the fact like Peterson or Harris at, at various times said that things like uh, like a moral statement that's true would be a fact but he didn't really um, he didn't really get into the nitty-gritty of what makes that a fact and why he considers it a fact um, he just thinks that anything that's true can is a fact so if that's your definition then yeah you could say that in in a given situation when you look at the options available and you said this person did that and that was better than this then you can say okay well that's a fact and in that case you're dealing with um, um, as opposed to comparing um, comparing something to a physical action that took place you're comparing something to a non-physical ideal and uh, and and so that physical non-physical ideal compared to that situation is either you know true or not it's a fact or it's not so mm -hmm. um, I don't know precisely if Whitehead always used the the term fact in in either of those manners or both but I think that he'd probably agree with the gist of that way of looking at things yeah I think that I, I just want to go and, and just touch on what the like the the atom um, you know the fundamental unit of Whitehead's philosophy is because I think that's really interesting um, so he 
you know every uh, everything in his philosophy can kind of can be boiled down to that one uh, specific unit. Um, you know if the and what he calls the actual entities. And he says that each actual entity is conceived as an act of experience arising out of data. And I just to me that is it sounds so much like information theory to me that mm -hmm. um, what he was drawing on or you know what he was foreseeing or forecasting. Um, this idea that the experience, uh, this experiencing. Uh, you know, it could be a creature, it could be an atom, you know, all, you know, it could be anything all the way down. But this experience is the fundamental unit of his system. And it made me think of, you know, going to high school and taking physics or chemistry classes. And you sit in class and, they, you know, the teacher says, you know what the, the whole universe is made of? It's made of atoms. And then they show you this picture and it's, you know, the billiard balls and everything and you're just like really the whole universe everything that's that's all what it boils down to um, but you know that's the uh, that kind of scientific materialist view but in Whitehead's process philosophy you know this these actual entities are um, are occasions where uh, experience occurs out of data that like you were saying it you know it can it, it's part of the becoming that process of becoming something else um, and it's all about acquiring that data and then, you know, acting on it. And, you know, in the case of an atom, you know, even, you know, something bumping into it is, a, is data. And you don't have to say that it has a soul, or, you know, it's going to hell if it sins or whatever. But, it, it, but there is, uh, there is some, something there that Whitehead says is experiencing. So he brings uh, that idea of that, that kind of homeostatic imperative that we were discussing in a previous show, how, how that idea spreads your sympathy throughout the entire animal kingdom, you know, and throughout the, every, you know, all the bacteria and everything that exists with, you know, DNA. And he, and he brings that all the way down to the existence of, a, of a, a, you know, the electrons and protons and everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then people, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, well, what about a rock? You know, like a rock to me doesn't seem like I, don't, I can't really sympathize with a rock. It, it's just a rock. That he, but he, he, you know, he he says no, that's not an actual entity in his in his mm -hmm. system because it's a society of all of these aggregated occasions of these events. Yeah, there's the difference between the rock and uh, something that we would call as being alive. Right. And so everything fundamentally is, um, you know, an aggregate of occasions of experience and the question is whether or not um, these occasions of experience come together uh, into what he calls a society of experience I think mm -hmm. uh, or a society of occasions mm -hmm. yeah. and so in a in a rock you have a society of occasions in a sense um, because it's made up of uh, you know different molecules uh, but those that that entity, that society of experience, does not give um, give rise to something higher. Uh, whereas, you know, in a dog or in a tick, uh, you do have, you know, molecules and you have atoms, um, 
but all of these things come together to bring in something new and create something new. And those uh, individuals are compounded out of the simpler ones. Mm -hmm. So that's that's you know one way of it's, it's it, 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 to me it seems so fascinating that that corroborates and fits with everything that we know mm -hmm. about you know just from the wide uh, variety of, of research that we, we've done on the, on the uh, biology and just the you know society and and how uh, people you know like they think that they're one person mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the but myth really. of sanity that we have <laughs> is that we think that we're just one individual but in reality we have so many different selves you know so many different uh you know bacteria that influence our moods influence what we want to eat and then we're surrounded by people that influence us and can spread all these contagious ideas and thoughts and behaviors and it's to me there there was some sense of a little bit of relief when you you read uh, whitehead's philosophy in the sense that you could get he just has a word for it yeah and you could just it's just one word in his system mm -hmm. um that can that's a, applicable to all of reality whether you're talking about physics or you're talking about biology mm -hmm. and so he would say that the the actual entity that you know being the atom of the universe out of which everything else is made applies on all levels including at the very biggest ultimate level so he would call like the the grand ultimate actual occasion, uh, God. So on mm -hmm. the most basic level, you have like subatomic particles and then working all the way up to like the one occasion of experience, which would, you know, which has traditionally been called God. And he uses various words for it, but, um, but you know, God's the kind of all encompassing one. But just one thing about, uh, you know, we, we may or may not, we may or may not get into his conception of God, but, um, just another comment on those society of societies of occasions, so that like the difference between a rock and a tree. So there seems to be something about um, actual occasions that um, it's kind of hard to to pin down because there are there are some let's say some some shapes and combinations of of um, smaller occasions that make up you know, a bigger occasion that has its own kind of unity to it, like every creature that we see has its own unity, you know, its own self, its own singular self that is above and beyond the collection of entities out of which it's made. But there are also, like, you, like you've observed, like rocks, which don't seem to have that, in, that um, kind of unifying and all-encompassing um, consciousness. Um, maybe, like, well, I think there's a couple things going on there, and one is that there seems to be some kind of um, like principle in the universe or some kind of like cosmic database of you know potential forms that potential combinations that will create a new organism and then others that won't and so all we can really do at this point is kind of look at creation look at all the creatures in the universe and kind of see which ones look like holes and which ones don't and we're actually pretty good at that we've got pretty good um, you know, information detecting apparatuses, which are our minds, to, to let us know that. So, you know, we can look at another human and realize it's another being with its own consciousness and not confuse it with a rock. At least, um, you know, most people can. <laughs> and then, uh, but then, <clears throat> like with a, so, so there's something that, like, on a fundamental level that differentiates those. It's like some are possible and some some aren't. It looks like the ones that are possible are, you know, well, they're created at such a, 
um, such a complex level in the genome, for instance, because all the, all the beings above the level of just uh, molecules that we know of are in organic life forms. But when you look at something like a rock, it is like you said, it's like a, <clears throat> it's just a, it's just a bunch of smaller organisms that that have been put together, you know, well that put themselves together, um, mm -hmm. you know, based on their their own habits of experience, and the habits of experience are we, what we would call like the physical laws, like the 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 ways in which you know atoms um, combine and are attracted or repelled by each other, you know, the way electrons are exchanged and all that. That's all very ordered. They they pretty much know how to do one thing, one or two things, and then they always do that. So when you have a rock, they're just all doing what they do, but they don't create anything higher. So it would be kind of like, so expecting a rock to be conscious would be kind of like expecting a bunch, like a pile of of dead human bodies all smushed together to be its own organism. It's like it doesn't work that, like mm -hmm. that way because, right. because um, there's no, like, there's no meaningful information that has been um, injected into that organization, right? It's just a, it's just mm -hmm. uh, like it may be ordered, it may because you know you can stack them up really nicely, but there's nothing about that organization that you know adds a layer of information. Now the human individual itself is like a whole bunch of different kinds of information, um, all nested within each other in a very complex way. Um, and in, in a way that's so, you know, vastly more complex than the ways in which rocks are made. But um, so you couldn't just you couldn't just jam a bunch of stuff together and expect it to be a conscious being. Just like you know, we found out with so far in our in our quest, you know, our quest for AI. It's like we can't just mm -hmm. create a computer and then have it be conscious. It's not that simple yet. Like we probably need to make a body for it first. And the body is so complex that we're no we're nowhere near even creating a body complex enough probably to hold a real consciousness or to 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 be conscious mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i just want to touch a little bit like what you discussed the difference between uh like the physical world just material and living beings uh, because whitehead has a uh, a word uh, he calls prehension which is a mode of taking account of other things that could be either sensory or non-sensory, and it's like it's an internal appropriation of causal influences from the past. So, like the and that's basically data. It's a way of of you know the data impacts uh, the the event, the actual entity. And so you look at a uh, an atom, and you know it's bouncing around, and that's the data that it gets. Is bouncing. Somebody else bounces into it. Oh, it does this, and then something, something even you know radically different. It's now it's in gas or something like that, and it's been it's different. Um, but that's that's basically the extent of the information that it has. But then as soon as you you see DNA get get um, you know planted in or, or you know this code, this language code uh, planted in, now all of a sudden all of these little elements have all of this more data. It's, it must just be like walking into this huge bank of, you know, books and money and like you can yeah. have whatever you want. You have won the lottery. Uh, so now, now they have all of these, uh, all of these different ways to uh, what he would say prehend um, the information. And, and then also when they do that, 
others are prehending off them, and it's just the scaffolding process that uh, that begins to take place, where and where you see this the stark divide between um, you know what we would call non-living, but what you couldn't call non-living in in Whitehead's philosophy, it would just be maybe less living of matter and the more living of the um, the the entities, the actual entities that are that now have DNA, that have all of these different ways of of putting um, codons together and splicing mm-hmm. things and and creating, and then and then it just you know taking off from there in that process of of uh, becoming, which uh, is the, just the basis of his philosophy. It seems you know the process philosophy. I have a I have a question. Um, you were talking about DNA and the idea popped in my head of um, DNA being an antenna that connects to the, uh, I guess Whitehead would call it the realm of eternal objects. Mm -hmm. And uh, that antenna is what connects uh, one particular occasion or actual occasion or actual entity to the realm of eternal objects that then infuses it with uh, the potential for creativity, for, um, uh, what would you call it, Uh, spontaneity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think that Whitehead would probably say it doesn't infuse it with with the creativity or the potential for creativity, that the potential for creativity is inherent in everything in the universe. Like that is a, that's Mm -hmm. one of the fundamental principles of, of the universe, it's it's a um, a universal feature of the atoms of the universe, of occasions of experience, of actual mm-hmm. entities. So, like, uh, it's in the very nature of an of a of an actual entity to be c- potentially creative or creatively potential. And so, um, what was the last bit you said? Um, talked about the, uh, the potential for creativity and and spontaneity and spontaneity well and i think he would also say that um well i think griffin says probably that spontaneity is a, spontaneity is a similar thing that everything has mm-hmm. a de- everything has a degree of spontaneity like yeah a proton doesn't have much sp- spontaneity like like very little to the point of being like almost zero because it pretty much just self replicates for all of eternity, but uh, maybe on like the level above protons, you would get um, you get more more and expanding degrees of spontaneity um, to the point of you know human be- human behavior, which is like infinitely more spontaneous than a mm-hmm. uh, you know just a you know even a single cell. Well, but then again, you know single cells are well we, we may not, we may not even know the degree to which. Um, single cells are spontaneous or you know unpredictable because uh, because they are so complex and we're you know we're always discovering new things about them but mm-hmm. on this on the subject of you know um, connecting with the or being antenna by which you know we come in contact with the realm of eternal objects um, first let's get that term out of the way eternal objects that um, in addition to occasions of experience, you know, actual occasions, eternal objects are the other kind of half of Whitehead's philosophy that make um, that make everything work. So you can't you can't have any accurate um, description of reality without taking into account what Whitehead called eternal objects. 
and what eternal objects were, um, probably the, the most basic description of them are possibilities. And again, this is why I've liked the direction that Jordan Peterson has been going in recently, because he's been saying that it seems like the nature of reality and the nature of consciousness is that we are, that consciousness is presented with a realm of possibilities out of which we choose one that then becomes actual and real. And that there's something, you know, even if it sounds weird, there's something inherently real about those possibilities. Like they have no physical reality, no physical existence, and yet they exist in some sense. And so Whitehead would say that those things, those possibilities, which would include um, numbers and morals and values and um, like the, the, the possible, the possibility side of propositions, and um, shapes and forms and pretty much everything abstract, everything that you can think about is um, exists within the actual occasion that is the mind of God. So the like that would be the information field. So what is the information field? Where does it exist? Well, it is the unified kind of universal mind in which everything else exists. In the same way that you could say that like your mind is the the universe in which all the parts of your body exist they're all connected but yours your mind is what unifies and gives well it gives mm -hmm. a unified existence to all the parts that contribute to it and that in fact make it up <clears throat> and that is what god is on the level of ultimate reality so eternal objects would be the possibilities and again this gets back to information theory it's the the informational possibilities which are then manifested in in reality. So on the level of like DNA, if DNA is an antenna for for accessing these forms, then you know every consciousness is. So like you know mm -hmm. every every mind of every actual entity is an antenna, kind of connecting mm -hmm. to the information field, connecting to this realm of possibilities, and. Um, and that's the way in which novelty is introduced into the cosmos. And what Whitehead means by that is that if you imagine a universe without possibilities and without a source of like new forms, you would just get a stable universe in which nothing new ever happened. It would just be repeating over and over and over, or you know, nothing would happen. Nothing new would come mm -hmm. into the universe. But we constantly have to have new things coming into the universe. Um, in a, you know, even in our own everyday experiences, there's constantly something new. And if there, if there is something, is there is, if there is an, ele an element of novelty in the universe, which there self-evidently mm -hmm. is, then there needs to be a source for that novelty, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A way in which that novelty is possible. And the, the way in which Whitehead then describes this is that it is in the realm of these eternal objects. So in any given situation, there are... Um, there is a set of possibilities that can branch out from that present, right? So these would be future, uh, potential futures. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in a universe without novelty, there would presumably be only one potential future, or maybe, you know, a set of, a small set of possible futures that it just kind of cycles through. But there would be nothing, like, essentially new and creative that would come out of it. Um, but if there is this realm of eternal objects, this realm of possibilities, that can then be chosen to be manifested based on the, the given conditions at any given moment, then that is potentially a, a way 
for which a way in which novelty can introduce <clears throat> sorry excuse me a way in which uh, novelty can be introduced into the universe and um, but there's one other thing that needs to be that, that is needed for that to be possible and this is where um, this is where the like whitehead's ideas of god come into the into the equation because we've dealt with we've dealt with like two of the three um, kind of essential features of modern philosophy. So, we, you know, from what we've described so far, we can see that Whitehead is definitely not a materialist because he mm -hmm. doesn't see that, you know, he doesn't see the atoms of the universe as being matter. He sees them as being occasions of experience, which is, mm -hmm. you know, not material. And we've kind of um, um, just, we've kind of just skimmed by the second one, um, sensationism, you know, in the talk of prehension, but it's kind of been implicit in the conversation so far. Like, um, so Whitehead would say, well, no, we don't only perceive by our senses, everything perceives in a way, and you introduce the term prehension, you know, everything perceives causal influence on it from the members out of which it is made and from the objects which surround it and from the uh, like eternal objects in the mind that encompass it. All of these things are experienced by the occasion of experience and he calls that prehension so um and that's it's not it's not um, based on the senses in fact the senses are based on a more fundamental prehension so like you know your skin prehends the the objects that it touches and then your your sensory cells prehend you know well, the, the pressure on your skin, and then your nervous system prehends the signals from those cells, and you know, all the way up to your brain, which well, the different parts of your brain which prehend those signals sent through your nerves, to the to the mind as a whole that prehends the um, all of the information that has then been um, kind of collated and processed in the brain that then gives you that one experience of touch. Mm -hmm. So from the from the very bottom up, it has been a process of um, complexified prehension from like a very simple prehension all the way to the most complex prehension of which we know, um, which is, um, you know, the mind experiencing something, in this case, a sense, you know, one of your five senses. Mm -hmm. But then, so then getting to the third aspect, which is, you know, um, modernism and postmodernism's atheism. Um, the, one of the reasons for which, uh, or one of the reasons why Whitehead did believe in God is because something like that, something like a universal mind, is needed to, to give value to some of those possibilities over others. Because if none of the possibilities in this realm of eternal objects, if none of those possibilities had some extra weight given to it, mm -hmm. if it, if it wasn't like placed somewhere on like a hierarchy of, of, uh, of possibilities, then the universe would just be random because any one thing would be, you know, just as good as any other thing. There would be nothing, nothing inherently better about one thing or the other, but there does seem to be something inherently better about some things than other things. So there must be an order to the realm of eternal objects. There must be an order to, um, to all the possibilities in the universe, and that would be um, that would be over time and and at an instant. So over time, there will be a story, there will be a narrative that plays out, 
or that that should that, that ideally should play out over the over the the life of the cosmos but also in any given moment there should be one you know any set of possibilities that are better than you know other sets of possibilities so that's not only so it's not only the way in which novelty is introduced into the universe in which new things come into the universe but it's also the way in which good things come into the universe um, mm -hmm. and th that are better and so we can see that you know again it's self-evident when you actually think about it because there's you know there isn't a day that goes by when you when you don't or when you uh when you don't, or if you don't, then when you should, say to yourself, oh, you know, really, you know, I could have done that better, or that could have been done better, or, um, or wow, that was done really well. Um, and it can be something as simple as, you know, um, you know, watching a football game, where you, you are comparing the performance of the, you know, the actual occasions that you're seeing on your TV screen to a, like a, hyp a hypothetical um, potential ideal version of those actual occasions, you know, like the perfect play, essentially. Mm -hmm. But but also in terms of theories, in terms of science and truth, like, oh, that really is a better explanation for this than that other thing. Or that's a better theory than this theory. That's a better description than this description. Um, that's a, a better organized system than this system. You know, that, um, you know, that person's um, nervous system is working in a better way than that other person's nervous system because they're dead. Like there are all <laughs> kinds of <laughs> there are all kinds of things that you can compare and objectively say are better or worse than others. And mm -hmm. not you know it's not just using human categories because um, I think that one of the one of the implications of information theory that um, that I haven't really seen talked about um, by the people that talk about these th sorts of things is that there are there seems to be like um, an inherent value in information. And I think the way in which we experience this, or one of the ways in which we experience this, is say for, um, you know, let's say that there's one, one copy of a book, you know, an ancient book that's like thousands of years old, and there's one copy in existence. And we know the language that it's been written in. Now let's say that you have some person that comes around and burns that book. It's like that is, you know, that should be a crime, you know, on par with murder, I think, because mm, they have yep. they, they have destroyed something of like inestimable inestimable value. Well, why is it valuable? It's valuable because of the information that it contained, and you know the rarity of that information. That was like a one. Well, it was irreplaceable. It was, mm. a, a, you know, a there was only one of it in existence. Just like there's only one of any person in existence. That's why murder is a crime. Um, well, one of the reasons murder is a crime. So there seems to be like an inherent value in information. And maybe, you know, that's also why um, we inherently value human life over like, let's say, ant life or tick life or, you know, the life of a, a carrot. Um, because we are, you know, we're more complex, we have more information. That may be one way of actually measuring value at least on that kind of, um, it's it's a very it's like viewing it from a very wide angle lens. Like um, so, it may work for certain like, let's say like lower resolution um, problems, but it might not work when we're trying to say like, um, well, to, tr to when we're trying to deal with more, let's say, involved moral dilemmas. But 
looking at it from this like, kind of like a big picture thing, I think there's something to it that like the more information, the better organized the information, the more value it has. And that seems to be a reflection of <clears throat> the way that those possibilities, that those information, um, well, that, that those like information templates that exist in the realm of eternal objects only as possibilities, um, that, that when those, those templates are, um, well, first of first, those there is a, an order to those templates in the in the realm of eternal objects, which is the cosmic mind. But then um, that order is then manifested in the you know the beings that that choose on some level to manifest those those forms. So there's a like a, a hierarchy of value in the in the sphere of uh, of eternal objects, and there's um, there are actual values and a hierarchy of values of the things in which those possibilities are made manifest. So I just want to touch upon uh, just the the modernist um, uh, moral philosophy and what and why they you know didn't believe you could think you know think of God or you know, of morality as as real. So they um, they believed that moral realism, uh, the idea that morality is real and that you could know what it is, is false because there's no conceivable way which you could use your senses to to see them. Um, you know, like what does a moral what does a moral act look like, um, and and how would you actually recognize it with your senses? And that they couldn't possibly belong to the nature of the universe. Of you know, since the universe was uh, all just nature, you know, just brute fact. But uh, what Whitehead said, uh, I'm going to read just a short quote from him: that um, our experiences of ideals, of ideals entertained, of ideals aimed at, of ideals achieved, and of ideals defaced. This is the experience of the deity of the universe. So, you know, just what you were talking about, just the, the need for God in order to, you know, have potentiality and structure and the, the importance of potentiality in our lives. Um, and just like that, the common sense notion that ideals and morality exists and the kind of violence that you do to people when you say they don't. You know, in, in Whitehead's system, he manifestly says that, you know, ideals or what we want or potentiality are a way of experiencing basically the, that cosmic deity. That's that mm -hmm. potentiality that's inherent in, in each of us and in every uh, activity. Now, he, he defined creativity as the twofold power um, of an event, um, you know, and like in his, his concept, uh, his conceptual scheme, uh, scheme, a unified event is just like an individual, you know, like you're a unified event or, you know, and also like the simplest organism uh, could be. Um, it's the power of a unified event to exercise self-determination and to exert causal effects on subsequent events. So, you know, this... Uh, this idea of creativity as a metaphysical principle that is a potential and has its own, you know, definition in his system is something that I think it just goes beyond what, you know, we, we would need as a rational uh, approach to encompassing all of the facts that we have. So we know that we have ideals, we know that we have mor morals, we know that for years people have 
had religious experiences of one kind or another. So there's, we know that there is, um, you can't just wipe that away, just, you know, just throw it away. And as you said, it turns out that, you know, this whole idea of having a moral theory and a, uh, that's based on anything but like a supreme uh, value system that is transcendent, it hasn't worked. It's utterly failed. And we can see it all around us. Uh, the uh, this kind of postmodern, you know, there is no objective values. You know, whatever this culture does is cool because that's what they do, and and this and that. It's you know, deep down, um, just part of our common sense understanding of the world is that there are there is right, and there is wrong, there are you know, good moral systems, and there are immoral you know moral systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's all I had to say about that. Well, a couple, maybe a couple, um, I'll take off on a couple things that were in there. The first one was that, um, that quote that you read from Whitehead, that the, you know, the experience of ideals, what like entertained and achieved and well, aimed at and defaced, and defaced is the experience of the deity, uh, like of the universe. I think what that essentially means is that, well, basically that is, those things are the way in which we experience God. So every, every time you entertain an ideal, every time that you think about or think about or aim at something better, that you are that you are coming into contact with the you know the primordial nature of God, which is how Whitehead termed it. That is your connection to God. That is the way in which kind of God is relevant to creation at every instant, you know, in every being um, universally. One of the things that. <clears throat> that uh, guys like Sam Harris kind of like try to criticize religion and religious people for is, you know, a belief in this God that isn't necessary, um, you know, because you don't need God to explain anything in the universe. Um, And that it's kind of extraneous and the only places in which um, religious people have found to inject God have been in the gaps in the, you know, the scientific materialist understanding of of creation of the universe. But actually, God plays a fundamental role in the ongoing, like continuous becoming of the entire universe, of your entire life. Like at every moment of every day, some part of you is in constant contact with the ultimate, um, you know, mind of the universe. And whenever you um, achieve an ideal, you know, when it, whenever you achieve like a, a moment of perfection or even close to perfection, a moment of something better than what you were before, and when you when you entertain those things, when you aim at them, when you think about them, when you feel them, when they move you and they motivate you, and um, well, those things are the experience of the ultimate of of God. And I, I like how he put of ideals defaced in there too, because that yeah. too that too is an experience. And that's what I was getting at. I'd forgotten about that quote, but I think it kind of like uh, um, you know, it's just I've read it so many times that it kind of like has just unconsciously influenced me because that's what I was thinking of <clears throat> excuse me when I was talking about like the destruction of a of a rare book because um, that is because there's a you, you're basically defacing um, an aspect of creation by doing that and when you like so when there's an ideal in the world that you that you actively deface like or, or when you when you either out of malevolence or just out of stupidity like there's those are the kind of like the two or two of the types of evil in the world yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like and like Peterson says, there's there's kind of like natural evil that's just like suffering that comes through life, and then there's malevolent evil, and so like there is a level of malevolence of of beings of people who um, 
who have some kind of like negative awareness of the the hierarchy, like the universal hierarchy of value, and they choose to totally subvert it and to deface it. And that too is an experience of God because they they, they must they have to have a connection in order to like reject it, essentially. Mm -hmm. So on some level they know that like the they know the good which they are defacing, and they in, they take pleasure in defacing it and making the world that much, you know, taking the world that much closer to hell. Like that gives them a rush, and mm -hmm. that's that's what psychopaths feel on the inside. It's like that's what gives them pleasure for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, that's the experience of that's the experience of God, um, which I think is very good, interesting. Yeah, I think it's very interesting in, in terms of his pan-experientialist uh, philosophy that you're looking at the entire universe as having this fundamental motivation, that everything is drawn uh, by this, like as like, like, you know, like a flakes on, to a magnet or something. Yeah. And, that's, um, and that's what gives the, the directionality to, like, say, the evolutionary process. That's why, mm -hmm, it looks, mm -hmm. that's why it looks as if beings through the course of evolution become more complex and more intelligent and you know and in some way better it's because they actually are it's because they're following a direction a directionality that is inherent in the way in which the universe is structured and not only that like we started the show by saying that whitehead's philosophy base can basically pre present an alternative present the the worldview that can um, fill the philosophical hole that is left in people as a result of like the last 200 years of of just like the 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 intellectual ideas kind of permeating mass culture um whitehead can can fill that hole and one of the ways that one of the examples uh of how it does that is that um like i i like one thing that uh that Jordan Peterson says about why, like what he calls like Western civilization, um, like works and why, like this aspect of his, of it is good. It's because we act as if the other person, or at least we should. No, this is you know this is a, a basic like foundational idea or value that we've mm -hmm. lost kind of in his mind, and that is that we that we should see each other as like a spark of the divine. Like there is something yeah. inherent in each individual that that does have inherent value, and he's like he won't go as far as metaphysics, but he'd say that at the very least we should act as if that is true, and mm -hmm. with Whitehead, it is literally true. Yeah, because, we can actually finally say that it is true. Yes, mm -hmm. because because every individual has that value manifested in themselves. Like they are an expression of value. They are a value not only to themselves but to the wider like organizational informational organ well informational shape of the cosmos like we are all a part of this one universe um and each part like each part has a has a part to play and can play that part better or worse they can either contribute to that greater ideal you know through their experience of god and through their manifestation of of the ideals in that universal hierarchy of value or they can play their part poorly and make it make the universe a worse place. But every little individual part can can play its role and should play its role. And that's kind of that that also adds the dimension of responsibility. So not mm -hmm. only not only are we essentially valuable because we do have 
value as subjects. Like we are valuable in and of ourselves, valuable to ourselves, valuable to others, valuable to the whole of creation. Not only that, but then we then we then have responsibility because as parts of this universe, as beings in this universe that are um, with free will, with the ability to do things, it then becomes our responsibility as parts of the whole to bring that mm -hmm. value into the world and to bring new values into the world because no one else is going to do it because we're it. You know, we are yeah, the th yeah. we are the things that bring value into the world. It's that yeah, simple. we are the subject and the object. So uh, if you were uh, going to be the object that embodies um, or could embody uh, the creative ideals of, you know, the universe, then, you know, wouldn't you want to give to the universe something uh, that is valuable and meaningful and makes it a better place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I... I, I have this one quote from him on religion. So he says, Religion is the vision of something which stands beyond, behind, and within, the passing flux of immediate things, something which is real and yet waiting to be realized, something which is a remote possibility and yet the greatest of present facts, something that gives meaning to all that passes and yet eludes all apprehension, something whose possession is the final good and yet is beyond all reach, something which is the ultimate ideal and the hopeless quest, you get a sense he's this Taoist sage yeah. you know, at, at that point. He's the closest thing the West has had to a Taoist sage. But he's he's glimpsed that um, you know that that idea of that that drive, the, you know that fundamental drive. And in his you know he not with revelation but with rationality and probably a hint of religious uh, revelation. But mm -hmm. he understood that this was a driving force or that this philosophical. Uh, system, even if not perfect, could still uh, s explain in a way that was psychologically healthy, physically applicable, and still it didn't do any damage to any scientific facts, but if anything, it just added something more to the facts. Mm -hmm. That's something more that makes more sense. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I think that's, that's why Whitehead has the postmodern philosophy. The solution to our postmodern woes. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's definitely, um, as you were talking about it, just it gives life meaning. Mm -hmm. um, when Harrison was talking earlier about you know the conception of God, I was thinking about um, you know what we are given to interpret reality is you know our bodies, and you can think of it um, you know not necessarily uh, it's not a hundred percent accurate, I guess, but uh, you could say that uh, in your in your body, if you're going on a fast, let's say to you know for whatever reason, uh, some cells in your body would be you know uh, disturbed because they weren't getting um, this influx of nutrition that you know it's used to, and it's like why why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. um, but God, you know, if you can think of it, you know, as as you as an entity you're doing it for a very specific reason and that gives that suffering meaning and without that it's like what's the point mm -hmm. yeah, i think there's one quote uh, he has about uh, complex beings and you know and everything that becomes in the universe and he says how an actual entity becomes constitute what that actual entity is its being is constituted by its becoming 
which I think functions as a fairly concise um, way of saying that uh, you know you what you bring to life is what you become. What mm -hmm. you do in the world is basically the, that endpoint that you become. That's the potentiality, the eternal object that you will ultimately um, end up becoming, and that you're drawn to. You know, he writes that the eternal objects are the pure potentials of the universe, and that we all differ from each other, everything in the universe, in our real, realization of those potentials. So I think that also functions as a very uh, good moral code, moral idea, in the sense that you know, the potentiality, that religious draw, that thing that draws you forward, you know, that, um, you know, you're going to know by the, what you're doing in your life, whether it's positive, whether it's religiously good or pure, whether your, your, you know, purity, um, moral code should be, you know, sensitized and go, mm -hmm. be going off and, you, you know, you should feel disgusted with yourself or whatever. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, as a moral system, his, he, he is, it's it's pretty darn good. There's it's really dense. It's t it's tough to get through, but there's a lot of books out there now that you know try and simplify it because it, you know enough time has passed and enough people have realized that he you know what he was doing and and exactly the the need that he was filling in this you know postmodern era that uh, you know it's it's definitely worth uh, looking into. Definitely worth looking into. I think. Yeah. And it's interesting too how the preaching. Prehension, prehensionist mode of perception, the pan-experientialist uh, view of uh, reality, and then the pantheistic view of the universe, how each is actually necessary for the other, and, and how all of them uh, suggest the others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a totally like complementary system, so it's, it's not mm -hmm. like just a bunch of random bits thrown together it's like each yeah each bit presupposes the other and each bit implies the other and mm -hmm. uh, i think that's one of the reasons that reasons that whitehead is so difficult to read and i think he's even he even said this at one point is that you know every part of everything that he writes is dependent on all the other parts and they all fit together so he had trouble um arranging it in a linear fashion um mm -hmm. not to say that it's impossible to do so but just the nature of the ideas is is such that it's kind of it's difficult to find a place to start, um, <laughs> yeah. just just because you know you have to you have to talk about other things in order to talk about your first thing, and it's just mm -hmm. kind of, it's just difficult. But um, but yeah, like uh, you need you need a like a pan panentheanism. Like we need to be within God, and God needs to be also like the 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 unifying like one over and above everything in order to have, like I said, like the hierarchy of values so that novelty and goodness can enter the universe. And you need, um, you need pan-experientialism to understand consciousness and how, how matter um, experiences and does become conscious at a certain level. And then you need prehension mm -hmm. to understand how, how we can have physical causation and to have, um, have the receptivity to novelty and goodness and um and experience and so it's all it's all just like different aspects of like one system that kind mm -hmm. of accounts for everything and that's one of the things that uh, whitehead said philosophy should be he said philosophy should be a couple things one is that it should it should account for the unavoidable presuppositions of experience so if there's something that we can't help but do then philosophy should be a way of understanding how that thing exists and is possible. So if we can't help but believe or if we can't help Act but believe as if. 
act as if there's truth, then our philosophical worldview must account for the existence of truth and the way in which we come to know truth. And it, it must apply to all of those presuppositions. So if we can't help but but, but um, act as if causation is real, we need to understand how exactly causation is real and not mm -hmm. just, you know, we can't just say like, I believe it was Hume did, that we we just, we can't prove that causation is real just because um, because of like um, philosophical induction, we have to um, like we have to make the leap to to believe that causation is like always true. Well, no, it's because we have a fundamental experience of causation, and mm -hmm. that is you know that that's the root of how we know it. And um, but the other thing that philosophy well, there's a couple of other things that philosophy should do. Philosophy should actually be the reconciling factor between religion and between um, science. It should be the one to take the the best aspects of both and to make them complementary. And uh, well, there's one other thing that philosophy should be, but I forget what it is. That'll be the <laughs> the, the mystery for for people to, to for listeners to discover. <laughs> and I like how um, I mean, I really like how David Ray Griffin structured the book, and you know, he made his arguments very very precisely, and really gave you that that view of how all-encompassing it is what it means for truth for time physics morality uh for uh our ecological worldview uh pretty much everything mm -hmm. science religion it's it's a really great read mm -hmm. well actually i just remembered what the other thing philosophy should do um is <laughs> and that is that philosophy should um, it should a philosophical worldview should take into account all facts, and it should be self-consistent. So it shouldn't be self-contradictory. So that means that anything that is a fact, like we talked about facts earlier, anything that is true must be accounted for by a philosophical worldview. So if your philosophical worldview can't account for a single fact then there is something fundamentally wrong with your philosophy. And if your philosophy is self-contradictory in any way, if it's incoherent, again, that means there's something fundamentally wrong with your philosophy. So the goal of philosophers should be to create a system that does account for all facts and that is uh, like um, self-consistent and non-contradictory. And so that's, you know, so, so I'm sure that... Uh, there are still probably some contradictions in Whitehead's philosophy. Like I doubt he got it all 100% right at the time, mm -hmm. but it is probably you know, like I said, not being a professional philosopher, um, you know, I can't find all those holes. But from what I do know and from what I do understand, it seems to me that Whitehead has at least come the closest and like far beyond anyone else, because uh, everyone else leaves something out. And yeah, and one all of the, the other postmodernists have right. so many contradictions, which should be the red flag to them that okay, well, something's not right here. <clears throat> exactly. Right. Well, um, was there anything else? Um, any other like subjects or like interesting things you guys found in the book um, that you can bring up before we shut down the show for today? Or did we cover everything? Mm -hmm. That's everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that he did talk about, uh, well, David Ray Griffin book, uh, wrote in his book um, on specifically ecology, the, 
what was it? Egalitarian, egalitarianism without irrelevance um, with the pan-experientialist view of nature and reality and you have the uh, inherent value of something that which it can give to the environment and the uh, intrinsic value of something being good in and of itself. I thought that was uh, pretty interesting given the pan-experientialist view that you can't say that um, humans are the same as bacteria or they have the same value um, because they don't, uh, both in the intrinsic and the inherent value systems. But when, when you look at the world and the way that um, the majority of governments and corporations and people in general uh, treat the world and treat other people, uh, it seemed like this was a really good way to get some perspective on how this is all part of the divine reality and we should be treating each other um, with, you know, truth, justice, and caring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and basically we, have, we do have a responsibility to, to care for our environment, mm -hmm. you know, the environment in which we live. And there's a reason for that. It's because it does have value in and of itself and value in relation to, um, well, to us, we can even have a selfish motive, you know, in part, it shouldn't be entirely selfish, but, you know, we can't create, our, we can't destroy our own environment um, because it's bad for us, but also because, you know, it's just, it's bad on another level too. It's bad because we're destroying something that is inherently valuable. Yep, and that's all I had. All right. Well, with that said, um, we hope that everyone gets a chance to check out some Whiteheadian process philosophy. I recommend starting with like a, a David Ray Griffin book, and you can pretty much just search him on Amazon and look at any of his philosophical titles, and then just find the one that uh, the title that appeals to you the most, or that kind of like looks interesting, and start with that one. Or maybe start with the one that we're talking about now, Whitehead's Radically Different Postmodern Philosophy, and then go from there because each book that he writes has, like, takes a different angle and looks at a different, looks at things from a slightly different perspective um, or a different focus. Um, but he usually includes all the basic ideas in all of his books and just relates them to that thing. So, <clears throat> so check that out. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Adam, and thanks, Corey, for this interesting discussion today. And we will see you all next week. So thanks, everyone, and take care. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.